0: This is Really Barred Ideas Episode 3, the series of podcasts in which I, the Really Barred GM, tell the story of one of my ongoing Pathfinder campaigns. We join Dejak, Alibuk, and Lutze on their continuing quests for family, vindication, the pieces of a shattered memory, and the echoes of a dead god. Welcome back to those of you joining me off the backs of Session 1 and 2. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast so far. Today we're going to pick up again with Dejak, Alibuk, and Lutze as they ascend a ruined mage's tower, in search of an important artifact. In the last session, we saw our heroes arrive in Sandpoint and negotiate the pay for protecting the caravan. While shopping in town, Lutze joined the party, on the trail of the man who stole his memory, and after eventually remembering the girl they saved from the hands of a malicious dwarf in the first session, the party saved her once again from a group of malicious men in a bar, before returning her home. The party had been hired by artifact collector Darvis Shorthall and sent to the ruined Majors Tower to pick up a golden fan. Since arriving at the tower, the party have had to deal with wild dogs, vicious spiders, shocking lizards, and stinky troglodytes. When we last left the party, they were ascending to the third floor of the tower, clearing away some rubble from an old staircase. Will they be able to reach the top of the tower? Will they find the fan? Let's find out in Session 3 of Really Bad Ideas, Holy Unconscious Monk Batman. You may remember from the previous episode that each of these floors so far has been split into four quadrants, north, east, south and west. That changes upon reaching the third floor. The third floor is split into two main sections, the northeast and the southwest. The party arrive by breaking open the door to the southwest section of the tower. Here they find a large chamber. The crumbling remains of wooden benches sag in front of two altars, one black and one white. Carved symbols and tapestries line the walls, and the burnt corpses of two troglodytes lie on the floor in the centre of the room. This room, as Alibuk informs them once he's performed his religion check, used to be a temple dedicated to the god Nethys, god of magic. The altars at either end of the room relate to his two aspects, protection and destruction. The writings on the wall come from Nethis's holy book. However, Alibuk isn't familiar enough with the book to make out what they say. Unbeknownst to the party, two undead minions have been left here to guard the temple from any intruders. As the party enter the floor, heading towards one of the two obelisks, the clattering sound of bone against stone enters their ears. They turn to find two skeletons rising from the floor, jaws opened in soundless screams as they raise their weapons. And as they do so, magical fire begins to spring up around them, wreathing them in a cloud of heat and flame. The party now realise the fate of the two burned troglodytes on the floor. The party's superior numbers mean that they can surround the skeletons, trying to draw their fiery attentions onto those with the highest armour class. Here, we also learn about damage resistance. No point bringing slashing or piercing damage to bleached bone. What you need there is something that crushes, something that bludgeons. The party quickly realise and adapt their tactics accordingly, downing the skeletons, leaving them only slightly singed. A quick investigation of the altars reveals two silver altar services as well as two silver holy symbols of Nethys and a divine scroll on each of the altars, one of Shatter and one of Shield. Finding nothing more of interest, the party continue up the central staircase to the fourth floor. The fourth floor is once again broken into sections north, east, south and west. The east section has been broken away, though the party don't know that yet. The party open the door from the staircase, leading into a room where crude bunks line the walls, filled with the nauseating stench of troglodytes. And sure enough, three troglodyte guards sit in this room resting. As soon as the door is open, they turn, quickly take up arms, and assault the party. During the fight, one of the guards runs, flinging open the door in the southeast of the room and heading inside. Bursting through the door with the troglodyte who originally ran comes a hulking, massive troglodyte at least twice as big as the others they've fought so far. He enters the room hurling javelins at the party, keeping their attention while his smaller companion tries to flank them. Though a tough fight, the party's superior numbers once again allow them to get the upper hand, and in the room from which he came they find a chest. With Dar Dimplefoot, halfling rogue, making quick work of the lock, inside they find a variety of masterwork armour and shields, and several magical scrolls which should help them further up the tower. Searching the body of the giant kobold, they also find a key. But what the key is for, they don't yet know. The party return to the room on which they entered the floor, and decide to travel through the northeast door. What they find is a room much like they found on the second floor of the tower. The walls and ceiling of the chamber have allowed rainwater to collect here, flooding the room and giving rise to a profusion of mould and fungus along the walls and ceiling. What they also find here is an angry giant frog. It seems whoever's moved into the tower has a thing for keeping pets. The giant frog lashes out with its tongue, grabbing the first member of the party to enter the room. In this case, to Jack. The rest of them heroically spring to his aid, freeing him from the clutches of the giant, slimy amphibian. At this point, the party have taken several hits. Health points are running low. And the paladin, at first level, can only do so much to heal them. Good job they brought those health potions back in town. A search of the room with a DC of 15 turns up a small jade statue of an angelic being lying amongst the rubbish under a broken table. Alibuck shines again, throwing out religion checks left and right in this tower, and reveals that the statue is from the Church of Saranray. Immediately, the party's eyes light up. You may have remembered from a previous session that they found a similar statuette belonging to the Church of Iamenidae, and received a hefty reward for returning it to them. The statue is taken, and the party exit through the southeast door, bringing them to the east section of the tower, the collapsed section of the tower. The room they walk into is completely exposed to the elements. Looking down, the party can see that they're on a section that overhangs the lower levels. Deciding they want nothing to do with that yet, they return to the central staircase and ascend to the fifth floor, where they find a door with a lock that not even the key they've retrieved from the large troglodyte can open. A discussion erupts around the table. How are they going to get to the 5th floor if they can't get through the door? Eventually, Lucey hits upon a great idea. We're going to have to climb. Funny how the person in the party with the highest climb stat would suggest that. They decide to return to the exposed section of the 4th floor where they just were, having been unable to reach the outside from any other part of the tower. However, before they go up, reasoning that that's where the final boss and ultimately the fan will be, if the GM is feeling nice, they decide to go down onto the floor directly below them in order to discover what's there before they continue. But what would be the safest way to go down? I say that in that way because I know my players will listen to this podcast, and I know they know what's coming. So do Jack, Alibuck, Lutse, and also Jezebel, Dar, Trick, and B, if they end up listening to this. Here we go. <music> Surely the safest way down to the lower level would be to tie a rope to something and then I can lower myself down, says Lutse. Yeah, that sounds like a great idea, the rest of the party agree. Let's do that. So they find a section of the tower that looks reasonably sturdy and they tie a rope to it. As I've mentioned quite recently, the party have taken a fair few hits up to this point and everyone's HP is running a little bit low. Luce volunteers to go down the rope first to the third floor, which he does. He passes his climb check and begins to descend down the rope. He even has the forethought to wrap the rope around his leg, just in case something happens, at which point he is attacked by a swarm of bats. The bats fly around him, biting and scratching. I decide as a GM that they will have done some damage, and as a swarm, as long as you occupy the same space as them, they don't need to roll an attack. I roll damage. Lutze falls unconscious on the rope. Now, in real terms, this session and session three were actually done in one live game over the course of a few hours. So what's essentially happening is that Lutze has started the campaign and in the first session he's playing has become unconscious while attached to a rope hanging from the floor of a large tower. Most of the party is in stitches at this point but not Lutse. I ask him to roll the d100, giving him a low probability that he actually stays on the rope because of the loop that he made earlier. But he succeeds. What we have here is an unconscious monk hanging from a rope. The rest of the party pull him back up to the fourth floor, stick a healing potion in his mouth and heal his wounds. The jack chooses this point to remind Lutse of how expensive health potions are. I think this moment was compounded for the players, because when they eventually did make the successful climb check down to the third floor, there's not actually anything there if they've looted the rest of the floor, which they have done. I think sometimes this can be one of the flaws of pre-made adventures, especially for new GMs who don't really know how to adapt very well. Sometimes the adventures have a certain way in which they want to be run, and if you don't run them that way, you end up coming into dead ends and thinking, oh, that would have been useful to know earlier, that sort of thing. Anyway, finding nothing on the third floor, they decide to ascend to the fifth from the exposed section on the fourth. I hope that all makes sense. After successfully climbing to the top of the tower, the party find themselves on an exposed railing high above the ground. The four wings of the tower are completely open on this level, forming one great cross-shaped chamber with arched ceilings. The decayed remains of a carpet run from the doorways at the end of each wing, meeting in the center, where a spiral staircase drops out of sight below. A large, throne like chair stands in the middle of the eastern wing next to a big, juicy chest. Near one of the railings, a troglodyte stares out onto the plains and towards Sandpoint. Next to him is a stunted albino cave crocodile. The party call out to warn him We're here. There are more of us than you. Surrender, and you won't get hurt." Funny how they still do this kind of thing to this day. The troglodyte turns, immediately sending his alligator companion to attack them. This was another boss fight of the campaign, and was handled in quite a chaotic fashion, as they often are. The alligator gave the Jack a lot of trouble, and to this day, he hates the model I used for it. Those of you who follow me on Instagram will have seen the crocodile I posted. I didn't have an alligator, but I did have a were crocodile, so that seems to substitute quite well. During the fight, the troglodyte also made use of the magic fang spell to increase the power of his alligator's attacks, and the summon swarm spell to summon a swarm of spiders. In Pathfinder 1st edition, it was most effective to hit the swarms with area of effect attacks, such as flasks like alchemist's fire, but the party didn't know that at the time. Jezebel retreated to one side of the room, firing her bow at the swarm of spiders. She seemed quite disappointed when I told her the bow had no effect. But think about it physically, if you're firing an arrow into a group of spiders, what's the likelihood that it's gonna hit any of them? The fight is hard, and much HP is lost. But the group eventually come out on top. Looting his body, they find a Masterwork Scimitar, and a Cloak of Resistance plus one. Very nice. Everyone loves items that increase their saves. At this point, Jezebel decides to ask whether she can skin the alligator. When I ask why, whether it's just to sell the pelt, she says, no, I think I'd just like to try making some armor out of it for Lyra, her snow leopard companion. And honestly, the thought of a snow leopard walking around in the skin of an albino crocodile made me laugh. So yes, go ahead, do it, roll survival, which you did. They find the key to the chest on the troglodyte's body and greedily open it. Inside they find another masterwork weapon, some cold iron shurikens, a few potions of different kinds and a scroll of summon monster, as well as assorted coins and gems. Also, at the bottom of the trunk, they find an ornate golden fan, decorated with mysterious runes. Alibuk tries one of his handy religion checks, but even he doesn't know where this has come from. It's a mystery. The party leave the tower and head back to Sandpoint, where they meet up with (music) Darvis. They show in the fan, and he is very pleased indeed. He offers them the original amount discussed, and they happily accept. When they ask about the mysterious runes that they can see on the fan, he informs them that his customer is a collector of rare artefacts dedicated to dead gods, and that he believes this fan belongs to one such deity known as Vez. But more than that, he doesn't know. He does, however, inquire as to whether the party would be interested in the job taking the fan to his buyer in Magnemar. Back the way they came, great. The party negotiate a price. And they agree. Eager to stock up on supplies for the journey, they agree to leave in the morning and head into town to do some more shopping. Gotta replenish all those hit points and sell the goodies you found, right? However, on the way around town, they bump into a group of orcs. One of them carrying an enormous great sword on his back. He shouts over, Oi, de Jack. De Jack turns and with the swagger of someone who hasn't yet been put in his place, asks what he wants. The large orc removes the great sword from his back, holding it in front of him. He seems to concentrate and grip the handle tighter, at which point a torrent of burning flames shoot up the blade, enveloping them in a heat which Jack can feel on his face from paces away. The orc thrusts the sword blade-first into the ground, leaving it burning as he approaches Jack. The rest of the party go to pull their weapons, but De Jack stops them. This isn't for them to interfere. The large orc stands centimeters in front of De Jack, towering over him. He laughs. <laughs> just thought I'd come see the runt. And with a great meaty fist, punches De Jack right in his jaw, sending the younger orc to his knees. The party gather round De Jack, trying to form a protective ring, but the other orc just laughs. <laughs> I'll tell your mum you said hello when I find her. I've heard she's heading towards Geldoria. If you know what's good for her, you best find her before I do. And with that, he turns, retrieving the sword from the ground and extinguishing the flames. His entourage begin to laugh and slap him on the back when he reaches them. Without looking back, they head out of town. The jack is left nursing a sore jaw and the prospect that his mother is being hunted and along with her, the heirloom that he desires so badly. And that's the end of session three. Thank you for hanging around if you're still with me. Uh, I really appreciate the support, and I hope you've enjoyed the podcast today. Please feel free to come and find me on Twitter, at BardReally. I'd really love to hear your feedback and some comments, possibly even some questions for me that I can answer next time. If, however, you're feeling in a more literary mood, then come and join me at reallybardideas.com, where I have the first two parts of my short story, The Binder, up for reading, uh, with more released in the next few weeks. As always, thank you very much for listening and I hope you join me for session four of Really Bad Ideas. Fetch me the head of Dar Dimplefoot. <music>